very hard. Um, it makes me emotional. Oh. It was devastating. You feel like, definitely feel like the system failed you. I don't know. I felt lost. I felt um, so many emotions. I mean, I felt like uh, nobody cared about the truth. I felt like I was never going to get the help I needed to prove my innocence. I wrote, I wrote probably over a thousand lawyers over the years trying to get someone to listen. That's Iris Siebel talking over Zoom from the Madison Correctional Facility in Southeast Indiana about her conviction in 2004. She was sentenced to 45 years in prison for taking part in the murder of Elkhart restaurant owner A.J. Williams. But a group of law students at Notre Dame believe that Seabolt is innocent. They're working to exonerate her under the guidance of Jimmy Garule, a law school professor, and Elliot Slosser, a civil rights attorney from Chicago. They filed a petition for post-conviction relief in late May, with evidence they hope will warrant a new trial for Seabolt. The student's faith in her has returned something Seabolt lost in prison life, something with the value she now fully appreciates, hope. I'm so grateful that they believe in me, and I'm grateful that they care enough about people and me to reach out. Sorry. To reach out and help us, you know, save our lives, you know, even though um, it's taken this long, um, I believe everything happens when it's supposed to happen um, the way, I mean, I used to say the way it's supposed to happen, but this is definitely not how things were supposed to happen. I am eternally grateful to all of the other students, to Patty and Elliot, and uh, Todd, of course. Um, it's been amazing uh, to, to have someone believe in me. It's just been amazing. I absolutely have more hope now than I've ever had. Exonerations are more common than you may think. There have been nearly 2,800 wrongful convictions overturned in this country since 1989. That's an average of one every four days. Each case's unique story of a real human being whose life has been torn apart. But the 10 people represented by the Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic have one thing in common. They're being helped by law students who are discovering what it means to be a different kind of lawyer in a flawed criminal justice system. I'm Brendan O'Shaughnessy, and you're listening to the Notre Dame Stories series, Proving Innocence. Mary Raphael graduated from the Notre Dame Law School in May. Originally from Egypt, her family moved to Texas when she was young, and she went to Baylor University. During her third year of law school, she served as team leader on the Seabolt case. 
She'll be our guide to the case and the new evidence the exoneration clinic has discovered. She starts with the crime itself, committed in August 2000, as the state presented it. The victim was A.J. Williams. He owned the restaurant TikTok, Tip Top, um, and um, he was known around the people to carry cash. He didn't trust banks, um, and he would uh, gamble a lot. So he had money all the time on him and a lot of a lot of cash, and everyone knew it. He would talk about it, so it was no secret. Um, so it was um, at night. It was around 3 a.m. That's when this happens. So the theory is that three people, two men, one woman, um, the woman if open, knew AJ and made him open the restaurant. And once he opened the restaurant, she kind of talked to him, and the two men walked and tried to steal, rob him, um, and eventually that they accidentally kill him. Um, and here, because there was no intent, everyone, all the defendants were charged with felony murder um, because it was during a robbery and the murder occurred. William's body was found just before 5 a.m. when a waitress entered the diner for work and came out yelling to some early customers that he was on the ground. Police found the cash register open and empty, as was William's wallet. There was a shattered glass door and, quote, a lot of blood. The coroner later said Williams died as a result of asphyxiation due to strangulation, with a possible associated suffocation with a plastic bag. Police had little to go on, so they started asking questions at a notorious motel across the street. There is no physical evidence any in the case that led to anybody. There was no finger. There was no fingerprints. So for a long time, they just had no idea who was involved. They didn't even know how many people. Um, so it was just a cold case for a while. Um, eventually, they started talking to um, people who, who heard about it. So the, the, re- the hotel, it's not too far away from the restaurant. So they went there, and then they started asking people about who was there that night. What did they talk about? When people started talking, a lot of names came up. The only three names that stayed consistent was Tony G, Police White, and um, Iris Seabolt. Um, and when those three names were consistent throughout statements, they were arrested. And um, Tony G had his trial first, and then to, uh, Police White, and then Iris Seabolt. And okay. so they were each charged separately, um, and each one had their own trial. So Iris Seabolt's trial was uh, the last one. Um, so the state, uh, it was, I think, 20, 2004, her trial. Um, so the state had uh, a lot of, their, the people they had on stand were, um, there were some jail foreign, jail house informants. Um, they were just a lot of people saying, this is what I heard from Iris Seabolt. This is what I heard from Tony G. This is what I heard from uh, Belize White. Seabolt knew that Tony Graham and Belize White had lost their trials before hers started. From the beginning, the prosecution pointed to Seabolt as the mastermind. Quote, Iris Seabolt saw the chance to make some easy money, said the state prosecutor. She knew A.J. Williams. She knew that he didn't trust banks and he kept a large amount of cash on his person and in his car. She knew that he was an older man and that he would be an easy target for a robbery. So she set him up and he died as a result. The prosecutor also stressed that the state did not have to prove that Seabolt killed Williams because she had been charged with felony murder. Felony murder expands the definition of murder and allows the prosecutors to charge a defendant with murder if they committed a felony at the same time, regardless of whether the death was intentional or accidental. 
The defense um, had one witness, and they asked her a couple questions, and they took a recess, and then she pled guilty. Um, so the defense never like had their whole case. The jury never decided. Um, I received all just she knew, um, you know, Lise White and Tony G were convicted, uh, were found guilty. Um, she was not satisfied with her attorneys, how they were playing their case. She had very, not a good relationship with the lead attorney. She didn't see a chance of winning, so she did plead guilty. And she actually misunderstood um, that what she was pleading guilty to. Like, she thought she was pleading to, I think, 30 years, but she actually got 45. So there was miscommunication on what she was actually, what her sentence was. The Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic took on Siebold's case before Mary Raphael began law school. It was the second case the group took after Andy Royer, who was released from prison after a judge ordered a new trial and freed him last year. Elliot Slosser, the Chicago civil rights attorney who co-teaches the class, explains why they took Siebold's case. You know, the Siebold case was starting there. You know, this is a, a case that involves um, a few detectives who are pretty notoriously linked to wrongful convictions. You know, when you're looking at these cases, you know, one of the things you're looking at is who are the officers? And then, you know, what is the evidence? Uh, and, I, and I think both of those officers um, are a reason why you would want to look deeply at the evidence to see whether it was legitimate or not. Former detective Steve Rizzucco was demoted for a history of coercive investigative tactics and improper relations with informants. Rizzucco plays a huge part in our case. He's in almost every, um, he takes almost every witness statement in our case. Because of him being a police officer, when he asked a woman to do anything to him, they would have to say yes, because he would tell them, uh, you either give me this statement or I'll take you to jail. That's, he just used his power to get whatever he wants. Since there was no physical evidence, the Notre Dame law students started their investigation of the case by re-interviewing the informants who testified at trial. What we started with at the beginning, we had to look at the people who testified at trial and we had to find them and talk to them. So a lot of those witnesses who did testify, we had to go talk to them and be like, this is your statement. Do you still stand by it today? No one has said yes. <laughs> like They're like, no, I was coerced into writing the statement. Everyone we've talked to, they're like, yeah, no, the statement's wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, and two of them or a couple of them said, yeah, Ruzuko told me if I say this, then I won't go to jail for my crime. Slosser was also able to question another detective who began the investigation, but left it due to his opposition to Rizuko's methods. The other detective dropped off the case after learning that Rizuko was showing crime scene pictures to witnesses as a way to coach their witness statements. But the other detective never reported this improper practice, and instead testified against Siebold at her trial and appeals. Um, so I think that one actually should have led to I see people never going to trial, never even getting convicted or anything that has happened. The team also examined the crime scene to see what they could learn. Another team member explains their purpose from the site of the murder. A low-budget motel notorious for drug use sits directly across a busy street. This is Holly Lanchanton with the Iris Seabolt team, and we're standing outside 
AJ's restaurant. Now it's a pawn shop. And we're looking at physical evidence, um, any indication of what the police may have missed or what the statements may have indicated that doesn't make sense logically. It's the state's story that she was involved with luring AJ to the door um, to knock as she knew him and he would open the door and then they would follow in and, and burglarize essentially. So she was very much the, um, the female lure. The state believes that the glass was shattered outwards indicating um, an exit. However, when you look at the photos and you see where the door was, the glass was definitely shattered inwards indicating that they broke in. So with that story, it doesn't make sense that there was a lure, um, which indicates that there was no break or physical entry, whereas the photographs and the physical evidence suggest otherwise. So I don't believe she was involved in this crime. The exoneration team has developed some theories on who committed the crime and why Seabolt was framed for it. For the longest time, we didn't know actually who did the crime, but uh, about, I think last semester, um, Patty, our investigator, was just talking to um, a person in the community, and someone came up to her, and he's like, I actually know who, who did that crime. He told me. He said that Tony G and Michael Mott committed this crime with a girl from New York. Seabolt was one of the women in the community that didn't give to what Rizuka wanted. You know, like he would come to her, but she wouldn't do what he wanted her to do. Mm -hmm. um, so like, because she, tr so she stood out and said no to the things that were wrong, mm -hmm. she got framed for a crime she did not commit. Seabolt said that going to prison in 2004 was terrifying. Over time, she has learned to manage. You, know, you have to go through this intake process, which is humiliating, and um, it was scary. It was uh, somewhat unexplainable. You know, your head's just spinning, and you don't really know what's going on, you know. You know it was just, I don't even know how to put it into words. It was horrifying. It was, uh, it was like, like I said, I just felt like I was stuck. Just one day at a time, you know. Um, one thing at a time. Um, I, I kept myself very busy. In college, I, uh, I received my associate's and my bachelor's. So I kept very busy Bible studies, and, um, and I prayed, of course, a lot, you know. And uh, once, once I truly turned it over to God, I just, um, that's how I found some peace. Seabolt is scheduled to be released next year, but the exoneration clinic hopes to free her first. There's just like her personal feeling, I want to get out, I'm innocent, I'm knowing I'm innocent instead of, you know, getting out because I completed my sentence. Yeah, it will completely affect her life because if you're innocent, you will no longer be, you know, you won't be a felon. Um, and um, even if she gets out, we're, you know, going to continue going with her case and getting her fully exonerated. In the Zoom call to her prison, Slosser updated Seabolt on the team's work and gave her encouragement. 
this. We're so excited and hopeful. So I know your head is always up, uh, but this week, you know, keep it up a little bit higher. We're almost there. Uh, it'll be on file uh, in about, you know, sometime over the next week. It's been uh, decades in the making. Uh, and, you know, we're obviously blessed to, you know, to be able to put this together and, and uh, give you, I think, a really um, compelling opportunity to, to clear your name. Uh, we'll do everything we can uh, to get you out of there before you finish this up. Siebold spoke of her future hopes and expressed her appreciation of the team's efforts as the call ended. I want people to know that these kinds of injustices are actually happening to people um, that are innocent, that... You know, if it weren't for Elliot and the team, I would be here my whole incarceration because, you know, most most people don't have um, any kind of resources in this situation to be able to help themselves. And um, I, uh, I want I want the message to get out there that this is a real thing. You know. There's a million people in prison that, that say I'm innocent, but people need to start looking at the fact that it may actually be true, you know? And um, if I can be a voice now or later to help people to realize that and, and grow compassion for, for people in these situations and try to help them in whatever way they can be. You know, that's exactly what I want to do. I hope that at some point I will be given a platform to do this. Thank you, and thank everybody. Um, It's good to see you. I appreciate you all beyond towards all of you. Raphael said Seabolt and the Exoneration Clinic have already had on her exactly the effect Seabolt spoke about. And she said it's not just Elkhart or Indiana, but nationwide. This clinic has completely uh, changed how I see the system. The justice system is not just, it discriminates against people of color. People don't have the income. And there's just so many wrongs that need to be looked at and fixed. There's obviously so many people in jail, sitting in jail for absolutely, just because that's who they are. Because... You know, they had the skin color, the wrong skin color, because they didn't have enough money to get the right lawyer. People don't believe that you can be in jail for 30 years for a crime you did not commit. It's really sad how no one no one understands the problem that's happening. This clinic will forever go with me. Like, I'm not going to directly work in exoneration work um, in the future, but I, it has forever changed how I see the justice system, how I see being a lawyer, and how to view the world. Proving Innocence is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Brendan O'Shaughnessy. Our music is by Alex Mansour. Thanks for listening. We'll take a little time off before coming back for the final episode in the series. <laughs>